This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about a broken nation. And that nation is the United States of America. And the thing that broke it, well, that's complicated. This country has a long history of racism, inequity, and political division, all of which has exploded in the last few years. But there is an argument to be made that the terrorist attacks of September 11th served as a kind of animating force, perhaps the animating force, of this severely divided and difficult era for our country. This is the thesis that filmmaker Michael Kirk considers in his latest documentary for PBS's Frontline series, America After 9-11. The documentary, which debuted earlier this month, is organized around two decades of history-bending headlines, but it's shaped by Kirk's ongoing reporting, which has provided him with an insider's view of every major decision of this era, and the leaders who made those fateful decisions. We invited Kirk onto our Northwest Newsmakers Live event series earlier this month to share some of his thoughts on his documentary and the 20 years of political upheaval it explores. Joining him is Rajiv Chandrasekharan, a former senior correspondent and associate editor of the Washington Post who witnessed America's wars in the Middle East from the Middle East. He's also one of the sources Kirk relied on for his documentary. In this conversation, which is led by Newsmakers host Monica Guzman, these two journalists offer an expansive view of how that one day changed everything, and what it tells us about where we are now and where we might be headed. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. question from one of our viewers that I think gets to the heart of something you explore in this film. Betty Jane Schmidt asks, why did 9-11 pull the U.S. apart instead of giving us the opportunity to pull together in unity? She adds, I lived through World War II and we all came together to win that war. World War II had clear winners and losers, right? What were we fighting for after 9-11 and why haven't we won? So, Michael, I'll start with you. I think uh, it, it's, a, it's a very good question to draw, especially to look back at uh, World War II. But you don't have to look that far back. The night of 9-11, our film begins with members of Congress standing on the steps of the building that was a target that day of uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, they spontaneously, the members of Congress, sing God Bless America. Uh, it's very hard to imagine such a thing happening now. Uh, in America. So that's how our film begins. And it begins with that because we wanted to sort of set the stark marker for what it was once and what it might have been. Uh, uh, Rajiv and I can talk a lot about markers along the way where we, where things happened that caused the division and, and distrust of the government and, and all the things that are the polarization that's happened in America since then. Mm. But uh, the idea that once we were, we had a kind of general view of what America believes in, what America stands for, and maybe we had it that day. Maybe people had it a lot more in World War II. Uh, but very quickly, 
uh, and Rajiv can probably help us figure mm-hmm. out exactly what that moment was. But very quickly, we uh, we began to separate, uh, go to our opposite sides. It didn't take uh, years; it took months. Yeah. So, Rajiv, where where did you see that moment, uh, witnessing it the way that you did? So. I have to just acknowledge that I, I wasn't actually in the United States on 9-11. I was a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. I actually wound up in Pakistan uh, a few days after the attacks. But even when I came back to the United States for the first time since the attacks in early 2002, it was amazing to me driving through the suburbs of Washington, D.C., seeing American flags on every home. Mm-hmm. This this amazing unity that had uh, that had sprung up for those who remember it, um, and for those who didn't, you know, watching uh, some of the opening scenes of the Frontline documentary and seeing, you know, those members of Congress uh, uh, on the steps of the Capitol, Republican and Democrat alike, singing in unison. And I can't point to a single moment, but it really falls under the the how we went about the uh, addressing the aftermath of 9-11 and the decisions made by our leaders. And what what the film shows in, um, for somebody who's lived through this and thought he knew everything about it, just the stitching together of the the lies, the the exaggerations, uh, the other falsehoods that uh, so came to dominate how our leaders uh, communicated with the American public about uh, so many aspects of the national security response to 9-11. And many the, of us will remember no weapons of mass destruction. W- what else is coming to mind? As beyond no weapons of mass destruction. I mean, let, let's go even earlier to um, as, as individuals were being rounded up as suspected al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in other parts of the world and rendered uh, to the naval base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, or others taken to CIA black site prisons first uh, to be to be tortured before they were sent to, to Gitmo, um, or kept in, in, in very harsh uh, prisons run by the US military in Afghanistan, the salt pit um, at, uh, at Bagram Airfield. Um, what our leaders uh, said and didn't say about that, the, uh, the refusal to, to fully own up and acknowledge uh, uh, the, the, the extent to which uh, uh, the United States at that point um, was violating aspects of the Geneva Convention and, and really uh, uh, violating our own constitution. Uh, th- th- this is not who we should have been as Americans in response to admittedly horrific attacks on our own soil. So you have that. You have the 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 uh, the claims of weapons of mass destruction of the run up to the Iraq War. You have um, uh, events like uh, uh, the treatment of detainees at Abu Ghraib prison. Um, you have 
uh, uh, rosy assessments of progress in both wars, where, you know, we don't have much of an insurgency in Iraq, uh, you know, or paraphrasing Donald Rumsfeld uh, for, for months as the insurgency was kicking up or over the years, and not this is not just confined, uh, honestly, to uh, Republican uh, uh, cabinet secretaries and, and political leaders, but even, even many Democrats who uh, would tout very rosy uh, reports or, of progress in building up Afghan security forces. Security forces we know were a sham and crumbled within days and weeks uh, this, uh, you know, earlier this summer. Um, as the United States was withdrawing forces in Afghanistan. So it, it's really, it's, it's a 20 year history that this film documents of, of, of untruths shared with the American people that, that, that so undermines trust and confidence in, in government and not just government, but, but, but other public institutions, the role that the media played in uh, parroting some of that. Uh, in the run of the Iraq war. Let's get to where that appears to have headed or taken us, and, and the, the film makes this point. Ben Rhodes is a former top national security advisor to Obama, and in the film, he called the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol the logical endpoint of the 9-11 era. And he said that when you have people who can't trust institutions anymore, who are angry that the wars that they were promised great victories in didn't turn out well, they start to look for people to blame. And that's a quote from Ben Rhodes. So, Michael, you've made dozens of documentary films about America's political challenges in the last two decades. Based on all that reporting, do you believe that the trust and division we're facing now was inevitable? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't at all. I think it was a failure of, uh, of leadership. Uh, uh, you, you had the president of the United States, uh, George W. Bush, new, untested. He'd only been in the office uh, nine months when it happened. They hadn't really paid attention to uh, people who'd come to the White House to say from the CIA and other places to say there's trouble that's flashing red, the warning lights in the world. There's a terrorist attack coming. So the, that institution hadn't paid attention. When it happened, he was shocked. Uh, the reaction to it is natural. 3,000 people had died. What are we going to do? Um, he was he, he, he made statements that night that basically said, we're the good guys mm. and they're the evildoers. It's a kind of fundamental problem when a president says something like that because it doesn't give him enough wiggle room to do things that you're necessarily going to have to do uh, in a war. Uh, uh, you're going to have to do what the vice president then started to say, which is to go to the dark side, to do things that the American people can't know about and aren't going to like. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you've, you've got a sense of hypocrisy. You've got a disconnect between what the vice president is saying, what the president is saying. And as Rajiv said, a lot of things start to happen that uh, that they don't that they just don't portray accurately to the American people, and it doesn't take very long, probably a year or less, for real division, protests to be happening in the streets about where are we going to Iraq, where are we turning to Iraq of all places. Uh, so there were plenty of, of early warnings and continued warnings all the way through the Trump administration. We follow the presidencies of. Uh, Bush, Obama, and Trump, and a little bit of Biden. And all the way along, American presidents get deeper and deeper into that quagmire. And for anybody who's old enough to remember Vietnam, there's a lot of echoes of that happening uh, 
over there too, as much as the generals didn't want it to happen. So I think it, it was um, it was not it it should not have been a surprise, but it was a surprise mm-hmm. at how badly uh, uh, our our politicians, Democrat and Republican, mm-hmm. handled uh, these circumstances. Yeah, and picking up this tension between you know the impact of the event itself and the path that it sent us on, 9-11 yeah. and our reaction, versus right. the decisions that our leaders made. So right. Rajiv, you know, having having witnessed uh, those decisions, you know, in the course of war uh, and in all of these very high stakes situations, uh, how much of this this equation do you think does lean on the presidencies themselves and the decisions of the administration? Ultimately, the buck stops with the president, and in, in all these cases, these are wars. President is the commander in chief, and um, uh, of course, you know. Uh, President Bush uh, has, has said that uh, some of the decisions that were made in terms of how detainees were treated were, were not clearly communicated up uh, to the White House, or at least not to him, uh, that uh, uh, much of this was delegated uh, to both Vice President Cheney, uh, Defense Secretary Don Rumsfeld at the time, as well as uh, uh, those leading the CIA. Um, but ultimately, um, these presidents uh, are to be held account, uh, held need to be held to account for how uh, these wars were prosecuted, and more broadly, uh, our overall national security response to the attacks. And that brings up uh, our question about Joe Biden. He's a president who shows up the least in the film, obviously a newer administration, but a very consequential uh, event: our departure from Afghanistan you know, just happened and is still quite fresh uh, in the American psyche and we're still debating it. Uh, so Michael, if you had had more material, more time to say more about the Biden administration's accountability uh, in all of this, what what would you have said? What story would you have told? Uh, 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 you know, I, we had the time, we could have reacted. I, he's, it's too new and what happened there is too fresh uh, and what may happen is unknown right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, as 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 much as I uh, try to, I, I can't make my crystal ball work. I don't really know what's going to happen. You know, a, a month or a year from now. So it's it's hard to peg Biden. But it's but Biden's fingerprints are everywhere in this story. Joe Joe Biden was running for president clear back in in the beginning when he and Hillary and uh, and uh, John Kerry stood up in the United States Senate and supported the invasion of Iraq, uh, uh, endorsed uh, uh, President Bush's invasion. So he was there for that. And when uh, uh, President Obama gets elected, Joe Biden is the vice president. Joe Biden and Obama, the last thing Biden wants, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Obama wants to do is deal with, uh, with Iraq. Um, he wants to deal with Afghanistan, which he thinks of as the good war when he first gets in. But Biden is given that after that doesn't work out so well. Yeah. Biden is the guy responsible for uh, uh, what America does in Iraq. And he forms a kind of opinion mm-hmm. himself of what to do and how to act. And I think that was part of mm-hmm. why he he moved. He, he, he got us out of there. He just did not want to have uh, what he witnessed happen, uh, continue to happen. He didn't see a good way out other than the way that he went. And, uh, and we'll see how, how that works out. But, but there's plenty of Joe Biden uh, in, uh, in, in the film and, in, uh, and, in his, uh, and, in his, and for us to know about what his actions 
uh, were and, and why they were what they were. So let's turn to that, uh, to Biden's good war in Afghanistan, which I don't know many would, would give it that moniker for, for several reasons. But we, we went into Afghanistan right after 9-11. We kicked out the Taliban. We stayed for two decades. Then we watched the Taliban return. Uh, Rajiv, you were on the ground there. Uh, tell us the years again. Was it 2009? Oh, I was there. I was there back in 2001. 2001. I had one of the last ever Taliban visas issued in my old passport. And then I was there... Uh, you know, back again in the mid 2000s and then uh, the bulk of 2009 through 11. Right. So having been on the ground, you also wrote a book about Af Afghanistan and the efforts there. And, and you say that in the book that you, you say that America never understood Afghanistan and probably never will. Do you believe our efforts there, based on your reporting, were doomed from the start, uh, this attempt to turn a faraway country that harbored a, a threat to some shining democracy that wouldn't? Well, if, if the goal was to turn it into a shining democracy, yes, that, that was doomed from the start. But um, that wasn't necessarily, didn't need to be the goal up front. Mm. Um, yes, very uh, U.S. forces and, and a very small number of them, but really uh, the Afghan uh, people, uh, Afghan militias, rose up and overthrew the Taliban with some help from the U.S. Um, and we had a moment there, a moment uh, to, to try to create a better future than what the Taliban uh, had left them with uh, and build upon uh, the devastation of, of a Soviet occupation, of years of civil war, and then the Taliban misrule. Um, and uh, at that time, the Taliban had largely melted away. Um, and you know, if you remember, a lot of people who in Afghan Afghanistan who we, we see as Taliban fighters are really, they're, they're, they're peasants uh, who uh, are desperate for jobs and they simply want to align with the winning side. And these were people who were willing to put down their weapons and try to build a better country, go back to farming, go back to their other jobs. Um, and so there was this window of opportunity, yet we squandered it. We squandered it because we took our eye off the ball to just moderately help rebuild that country, not turn it into a Jeffersonian democracy, but to turn it into something more stable. We took our eye off the ball because we went to go invade Iraq and allowed, and it wasn't overnight that the Taliban rose up. It was a slow building insurgency over years. And there were plenty of opportunities where we could have turned the tide, but we were so caught up in Iraq that ultimately by the time Obama takes, takes office, even though to him, Afghanistan is the good war because Iraq was the bad war, um, and he couldn't be seen as a young democratic candidate to be against both wars. Um, it's too late, it's too hard, even though they're surging troops um, in under his watch. Um, it's just too hard to turn around um, unless we wanted to be there for years and years on end. And um, the American people certainly didn't want that. Hmm. So I'm very curious, Rajiv, as you watch the public conversation swirl, around what's happening in Afghanistan. You know, lots of folks trying to recall how we got in there in the first place. Like, what was this all about? What happened? What went so wrong? I mean, knowing the, everything that you know, what do you think the public conversation is sort of getting right? And what is the biggest thing they're missing? Well, it's easy to go, go into a war. The hardest part is how you end a war, how you get out. Um, and in, in the modern world, you know, wars don't end like they ended in the Second World War, 
that's that's a you know that's a sort of a historical anomaly. And um, you know, Biden is a uh, is a president who wants to just rip the Band-Aid off. That's what he did. You know, Michael was talking about Iraq uh, when he was vice president. Uh, there were a lot of uh, individuals saying in, in the military, in the uh, intelligence community, uh, arguing that the U.S. should have kept a small follow-on force there to have prevented the growth of ISIS. And Biden uh, really just wanted to rip the Band-Aid off and get out. And uh, that's what he wanted to do in Afghanistan, too. And look, this, this was something that was punted by administration after administration. And so on one hand, it's a remarkable act of courage. But um, even so, in ripping off that Band-Aid, there were a number of assumptions that factored into it about the strength of the Afghan security forces, the ability of the Afghan government to hold the line that I believe were, were fundamentally misplaced. Uh, if Joe Biden knew that uh, scenes like what unfolded at the uh, Hamid Karzai airport in Kabul would have unfolded. He wouldn't have done it this way. Ah. So, you know, 20 years on, uh, even though we've made such advancements in our intelligence gathering apparatus and, and the national security community, is very different than it was on September 10th, 2001, um, we still get a lot of things wrong. and. Um, the U.S. Uh, government fundamentally misread. And some of this is wishful thinking, thinking that we put in so much, we invested $80 billion in building these security forces, we trained all these people. Yeah. You think you think that inputs need to equate to outputs, but when individuals don't know what they're fighting for, when there isn't that spirit of national unity, when you have malevolent political leadership, um, you have to factor that into your expectations of what will happen when you start to head to the exits. Mm, right, it's not a simple equation of inputs and outputs. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> so switching gears, Michael, you had brought up before the moral terms that George W. Bush used. Yes. The night of 9-11 and then continued. He said that night, today our nation saw evil. In the film, author Thomas Ricks points out that framing this fight as being against evil assumes that we are fighting for good, maybe unquestionably. Um, he asks early in the film a very interesting question. He says, who are we and what do we want to do as a nation? And he claims, we answered that question too simply on 9-11, that we're the good guys. So Michael, this seems to set up the idea that we are not the good guys, but you don't necessarily provide an answer in the documentary as, as to who we are instead. Why not? Well, I think it's there. I think it. I think it's. I think we're a very divided uh, country. I think we don't. We don't have any common. Uh, 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 there's no unanimity about who we are. Uh, some of us are I extremely angry. Uh, uh, we don't don't believe in our government. Uh, the the battle between both sides as it got more and more uh, obvious uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests and other events when uh, President Trump was was making sure there was uh, there was uh, uh, using it all as a kind of wedge issue. It was pretty clear what had happened across the 20 years by then um, uh, that we were dividing, we were pulling apart, we were uh, there were many, many, many Americans who were against the war. There were many Americans who didn't think about the war for a long time. They, their children were not dying there. 
the you know the, the blood and treasure that usually wars exact had not happened to the largely white middle class and upper middle class the soldiers and, and uh, the people who were dying over there were not uh, us they were other people and they were angry when they came home and there were people their families were angry uh, they'd been lied to uh, and it took a little while for the country to kind of pull apart. Other things happened too: economic dislocation in 2008. Race issues were mm-hmm. just inflamed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the feelings of, of uh, 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 misogyny and mistrust about Middle Eastern people. Mm. It was just, uh, I mean, it was all happening. So are we the good guys or the bad guys? Well, it depends on what side or you're Or something on. else, but, yeah. But there was a lot of good guy, bad guy, and a lot of finger pointing, a lot of, suddenly on, on January 6th, the, the, the democracy is in peril, and, uh, and a, a, a large number of Americans have decided that it, that democracy and the election was not fair. They mm-hmm. believed a lie from the president of the United States, and they have attacked the Capitol building, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and they've done something that Al Qaeda wanted to do on 9/11 and couldn't, uh, and successfully did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Rajiv says in the film, uh, if we can't take time to stop and think through the meaning of all of that, to 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 go back and ask ourselves. What happened and why are we where we are? Uh, we're really doomed to, mm. uh, you know, as, as a nation. And I believe that. So I think it is fairly clear mm. when you go back and you look at it, what side everybody's on and, and kind of how it happened. Wow. So Rajiv, you wanted, to, you wanted to, to say something. I'm sure you have lots of thoughts here. I wanted to do, well, several, but uh, uh, build on something that, that Michael was saying about the individuals who fought. Um, and, and two things here. Um, we owe them enormous respect, this generation of Americans who all put up their hand to serve, all volunteers who went, who, and so many of them went because they, they heeded a call to, to defend America in the wake of 9-11. Um, they, they heeded calls from their political leaders that these wars were right and noble missions. Um, and so... I have, and we should all have, an enormous degree of respect for their service. Uh, And and so many of them came home uh, grievously wounded, and thousands uh, never came home. But the truth is, if there was a draft, if any American young person could have been sent over to fight one of these wars, there's no way we would have been in Afghanistan for 20 years and we likely would not have been in Iraq for as long as we were. Um, oh, so more. I'm definitely interested in more. Yeah, why? We, we, we allowed the fighting to be um, conducted by a very small number of Americans. Less than 1% of our fellow countrymen served in uniform uh, in the military in support of these wars post 9-11. When you add their family members, it's, it's less than 5% of the American population had any skin in the game. Most Americans were blissfully disconnected from this. And remember George W. Bush in that offhand comment, right? After 9-11 asked what people could do. You know, he said, you can go shopping. We, we, we reinforced this sort of civilian military divide in our society. Yeah. Um, but for those people, for those people whose lives were defined by this, who served there or their family members, 
um, as they came to to grasp the reality of of what was really playing out and um, what they were told by their leaders versus reality, it started to among them as well as many others. To Michael's point, it really started to to deeply undermine trust. Right? We had the trust in institutions, trust in political leaders in the wake of 9-11 was at an enormous high. It's not a point made explicitly in the film, but you know, the American people had enormous trust in government post 9-11. We were ready to act together. Yes, despite the massive intelligence failures, the public trust of the government. And that has been, you know, so deeply eroded over the past 20 years. Uh, and in no small measure to how our government leaders responded. Wow. Do you see a connection, Rajiv, between the disconnection that, that you're observing in the American public with these wars and the division, the arc of division through these 20 years? Is there some connection you see between that sort of lack of skin in the game and the ability to, to divide and to, and to lose so much trust to begin with? I, I'm wondering if there's dots to connect there. Well, I think that for those who had skin in the game, uh, in many cases, their um, their discontent began earlier. Uh, their lack of faith in the system um, uh, was was present uh, sooner, perhaps than than with others. But um, uh, before long, um, this starts to transcend that division, uh, and that. You know, ordinary Americans, even those who didn't serve, start to ask themselves, wait, why, why were we lied to about WMD? Why were we not told the truth about how detainees were treated? Why are we told that things are going so much better than they really are? Why are we spending trillions of dollars there when we have such pressing needs here at home? Mm-hmm. Well, gee, we can go a couple directions from there, but... I, I want to ask, uh, turn to you, Michael. You, you both are journalists, and so your job is to try to explain what's happening, right, to the country. At the same time, as we've talked about, there's all these moments where things suddenly weren't what they seemed, um, where, wait a minute, what was the government saying? Are, are we the good guys, really? Are, are, is this, does this make sense? There's no weapons of mass destruction, Guantanamo Bay. All of these things start to switch. So for you as a journalist, was there a moment where you yourself had to almost change tactics where you said, oh, wait, I don't know what I don't know that I can trust the same assumptions I might have had. Um, now I need almost new tactics. This is a, a new a new realm where there is less trust and we need to be even more skeptical. A lot of folks remember the, the media and you mentioned in the film. Um, mainstream media at the time seemed to really support the war in Iraq and the the theory of weapons of mass destructions being there because of faulty intelligence, sure. But the media had a kind of reckoning. Did did you have that reckoning? Um, I don't. I I mean, I made nineteen films in there, right? You know, um, and and most of the films were following the really uh, obvious to us. Uh, Shakespearean drama going on inside the American government, the very upper reaches between the defense secretary and the vice president, the vice president's office, the secretary of state and the president of the United States over and, and the, and the head of the CIA and the, and the battles were 
unbelievable if you could get inside and find out about them. And you understood almost from the very beginning how fundamental uh, uh, the internal politics uh, of the relationships were for the power of what to do, uh, knowing that the nation was embarking on leaving Afghanistan. Uh, Osama bin Laden had vanished and gone to Pakistan. Mm. America, in some ways, its initial objective wasn't there. So somehow, things get roiling inside the White House, the Defense Department, the CIA, that turns us toward Iraq. Why are we going to Iraq? Mm. And if you're a trained observer uh, uh, and you're paying attention and you're in Washington and you have sources and you have the wonderful luxury of, of big budgets so that you can be there and make, make big documentary films about it. You are hearing about it. You're watching your government morph and, and you're watching truth begin to get tarnished and, right. and people beginning to say, well, what am I hearing? And you, you, you watch the actions of somebody like Secretary of State Colin Powell and you watch what happens with him and the drama of why he decides to do it. Then mm. he does something that he doesn't really believe. And, and you know, when he goes he to the UN and, and yeah. defends the intelligence, he really, I mean, he told many people, I, I'm not sure about this. And everybody was sort of hearing about it and feeling it. And then there he is. And he gives this performance, mm. but he makes George Tenet, the head of the CIA, sit right behind him mm. on camera. So, so, for those of us who were inside there watching it all the time, mm. uh, it was pretty clear things were unraveling. Mm. There were real political struggles going on between the Defense Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. The vice president, the vice president's office, which was massive, he personally mm. was uh, doing lots of things. And the president, you know, not really understanding there were legal things going on. So there was a tremendous amount of stuff that was happening over those uh, over those years that we got to see. And it didn't really change my opinion because in the first place, my opinion doesn't really matter. What really mattered was what we were getting, what we were hearing, and could we get it all uh, mm. uh, sorted out and on television for people. Right. So it sounds like you sort of found in some ways the heart of the story about what you know, thousands of armed service service members are doing, and uh, you right. know, millions of us in the country really came down to a few individuals in power, and and the the sort of dramas and decisions among them. Um, Rajiv, is that is that where you you would have found kind of the core of the story? You know, you, you were more where the consequences were bearing out uh, internationally. Well, the, the the consequences were bearing out, but they had their roots in the decisions that were made right. in the White House. And um, the, those rivalries um, had disastrous consequences for US forces. Um, it meant at times troop levels, <coughs> pardon me, were, were too low. It meant that uh, forces weren't properly equipped. It meant that we didn't have a plan to try to stabilize from a civilian point of view, Iraq, when US troops arrived, there was no post-war or no kind of occupation governance plan. And then when we sent people in, they did disastrous things like disbanding the Iraqi army and banning low level members of the Ba'ath Party from ever working in government again, which had the combined effect of just creating um, thousands upon thousands of enemies, 
we, we essentially built the insurgency with decisions that we made and decisions that were never thoughtfully debated or discussed in Washington, but the result of a slapdash plan to try to uh, stabilize the country because none of that was properly um, factored in the planning process uh, back at the White House, the Pentagon, or the State Department. So a quick reminder to our viewers, we're going to go to uh, audience Q&A pretty soon. So do get your questions in. Uh, there's 20 years of material here, folks, lots to cover. Um, so for the two of you, American history covers a lot of periods where we've had to reckon with, if you'll forgive more moral language, our sins against ourselves. Top of mind these days, Michael, you, you brought this up, racism, xenophobia, and now, you know, hatred bordering on violence uh, between, between the political left and the right. So Michael, how much of all of that can we lay at the feet of 9-11? Well, um, I, I mean, I, th I think a fair amount. I, you know, so I've made a lot of films about racism in, in America. I made films about economic dislocation, especially around 2008. Those were, and, and, and both of those things caused tremendous division in the society. America was already roiling through all of that. 9-11 comes along, it's the next piece. It's not the only piece. It's not, maybe not the big driver, but I think it was. Uh, and when you add that to, to what else was happening in the society, uh, and, you, and you find yourself in, in, uh, in rolling into a president, in uh, President Trump, who saw the war and all of these things as wedge issues, opportunity to, to, to get people riled up. That's where his power and strength came from. Uh, uh, the fuse got lit, and it, and it, and it was uh, really lit. Uh, and everybody was ready to, to, to rise up, uh, certainly his base, to keep them active and moving. Uh, he, he, knew how to, he knew how to punch the buttons. And, uh, and I think it is, a, it is a combination of all of those things that were coming uh, in America. Uh, and I think 9-11 and most of the things that happened in 9-11 underscored it. But the thing that really, really has happened is that truth is not, a, there's not an agreed upon truth about America or what is true, what the government says to you. And, and if you need any evidence for that, somebody asked me uh, uh, about a week ago, what do I think it would take for everybody to kind of come back together, like singing on the steps of the Capitol building on the evening of 9-11? And, and do I think it, it's in the near future? And I said, no, we're in another war right now. We, look how we've handled. There's a, a poison killing us in America, door to door, house to house, city to city. And yet we are deeply divided about getting vaccinated. Mm. You, know, mm -hmm. you, you know, there's there, there was no question that we would all get vaccinated for polio. There's no question that we get vaccinated or very little for measles, mumps, anything else. But this is something that has killed mm. more than half a million of us. Mm. And it's coming. And and we can't agree on that. Uh, did 9-11 cause this? Well, it's certainly whatever was happening between race, economic dislocation, uh, and, 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 what, and what happened because of those wars and mm -hmm. the failure of American presidencies, three American presidencies. Uh, here we are, where we can't even agree to go get 
uh, uh, vaccinated and stop a scourge that threatens to kill tens and tens of thousands of us, more of us, many more. I, I just, that's the proof, if you need it, that we are mm. a, a deeply divided nation. Mm. Well, I wouldn't lay it all on the, the feet of 9-11. I know Michael doesn't, <clears throat> not by any stretch of the imagination, but that and the, 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 the kind of overriding point of the film, the, the, the erosion of trust by the actions and statements of our leaders had this you know, cumulative pernicious effect that just snowballs. Mm -hmm. And so then it allows, it allows political leaders that want to traffic in untruths to find an opening. Uh, this is further kind of fueled by the advent of social media and the ability for Americans to propagate um, untruths at scale. Um, and, and, and these things all build on each other. Um, to get us to where we are today. And, and there are other factors as well. But, mm -hmm. but in some ways, one of the biggest openings here, or one of the, the, the biggest you know, initial kind of sparks to all of this was certainly the, the response to 9-11. Um, you know, it wasn't in and of itself, but it, it plays a tremendous role. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So Obama ran against our wars with a call for change. Trump ran against our wars with a call for strength. Both those messages resonated with a post 9-11 America that was trying to renew itself. What, what do you ultimately think it's gonna take to not repeat to, to get out of these vicious cycles we're talking about? It's, a, you know, I've been around, I'm sorry to say, long enough, or maybe happy to say, long enough to remember that for years before 9-11, uh, uh, Vietnam used to, I had lots of people who told me this, in the Oval Office, the specter of Vietnam hung on the wall mm -hmm. on every decision, every president, every mm -hmm. Joint Chiefs of Staff meeting, every meeting they had. Vietnam, Vietnam, with the military, with the U.S. military, thought about it, planned for it. Now I think, I'd be interested in whether Rajiv thinks this, but I think so. In the Oval Office, no matter who the president is for quite a while, this is going to hang in the wall. This, what, what happened, what, what terrible things happened, and in, in lots of directions, the mistakes that three presidents have made, must be on Joe Biden every day. Mm. He must be thinking about everything that's in that film and, and what happened, because he was there for every moment of it and, uh, and, and participated in a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a feeling like Vietnam drove Bill Clinton's presidency, George H.W. Bush's presidency, mm -hmm. Reagan's presidency, that it was just there. And I think now, 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, 
lies about weapons of mass destruction, the torture, the Abu Ghraib humiliations, the whole long list of what happened, uh, all the deaths. Uh, it's, 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 it's in the air over there. The old mm. It's so, every president. In the interest of time, Rajiv, I'm going to ask you our first reader question, which comes from Dan Saltman. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Um, he asks, because we as a society are so afraid now, did the 9-11 terrorists achieve their goals? Well, I think there are ways in which what Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda leadership wanted to accomplish. Um, uh, I'm being inarticulate here, but, but elements of what they wanted to accomplish, uh, perhaps in ways that they could not have foreseen right. way back when, have actually in, in some fashion come to pass. Um, the amount of money we've spent, the, the, the bankrupting of America uh, fiscally through these wars, um, the, the number of people that would uh, wind up dying and being grievously injured, both in the United States and around the world, um, the, the diminution in our standing around the world, uh, you know, the wake of 9-11, you know, uh, every newspaper in the world was essentially proclaiming we're all Americans, mm -hmm. as Lamont did. Um, that, that political capital was long squandered. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the divisions that have been sown in American society through this um, and the, uh, the, the low esteem in which we, in some cases, rightly hold our political leaders, um, the fracturing of our society, the fact that we are, you know, in some ways in a cold civil war in our country today. Um, uh, th this is this has caused uh, a uh, uh, a level of of, of 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 damage to our country um, that, in some ways, you know, far exceeds uh, the destruction of two skyscrapers. Uh, in our most iconic city, and far exceeds perhaps what you know was even in the wildest dreams of uh, uh, you know a lunatic uh, who was in the caves of Afghanistan as this was planned. Mm. So, Michael, Lorraine France asks <laughs> along the same vein. It it seems like the lack of trust in government has been has been well earned. She says, "How do we get back from that? Uh, how do we actually claw our way back?" To, to some kind of trust, to some lack of huge division. I think it's a, it's the, it's a, got to be the thing that Joe Biden thought about from the moment he won. And every day, everybody who works in government, you wish everybody who'd been elected to Congress and was sitting in Washington was saying, how can I tell the truth? Let me try to tell the truth. But I don't think that's happening at all. Uh, I think it's about, it's, it's, it's the great defeat of the democracy. It, it, it relies on truth. It relies on trust. You have to be able to know that when an election is held, it's over and there was a winner and you believe the count. You have to believe that in order for democracy to exist and democracy rests on truth mm. and, and some shared truths. Uh, it's very hard to imagine. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, 
I'm optimistic as a person, believe it or not, given all the things I've seen in the world. But I, uh, but I don't, I, I don't know. I'm a little, I despair a little bit about, about that thing, the truth, especially since it's the business I'm in, is to try to tell it and find it out and discover it and bring it forward. It's. I was to gonna, I was gonna follow up with you on this because I think it's a very important point. You know, you're talking about there's folks who don't believe what what appears to be quite clear. On, on, who, on whom rests the burden to persuade? You know, we've talked about political leaders. We've talked about journalists. We've talked about American citizens. There, there's all kinds of groups. I mean, to you, who, who has to work the hardest to make sure people can believe what, it, what ought to be believed? I, th I, think it, I think it rests with leadership. And, and of course, the people like me and Rajiv in, in an earlier life and maybe in a future life, we... we we uh, have to convey it and find it and dig it out and bring it forward if we can. We have to have the courage to do it in the face of people who don't want us to do it uh, and in the face of economic pressures that may not let us do it. Uh, we have to do that. But really, really, this is a thing of leadership and, and people have a right to demand it. Uh, uh, and, and I'm not, and it's a, it's a, that's a tall order right now. So Rajiv, a question from Sue from New Jersey. Is the war on terror over or is it just taking a different shape? Oh, it's by no means over. Uh, not by any stretch of the imagination. We have special operations forces uh, that are active or not necessarily active, but, but have, that, that, that have a presence uh, at some point in the year in uh, upwards of 100 countries. Um, we uh, will likely, our uh, military special ops forces and our intelligence uh, community and, and, and paramilitary teams will, will likely be conducting um, uh, operations uh, to address uh, fringe ISIS elements and other uh, radical extremist elements in South Asia, parts of the Middle East and North Africa. And it's, it's worth noting um, that, uh, you know, under the Obama administration, uh, and, and this is something that, that, that comes through a little bit in the film, um, in response to the, uh, some of the controversies around uh, interrogation and the controversy around holding individuals at Guantanamo, the Obama administration moved to very significantly escalate uh, the drone war against um, members uh, of uh, Al-Qaeda offshoots in the Arabian Peninsula and elsewhere. And um, uh, that continues to this day. Uh, we don't have all the headlines about it. It's all done in the shadows. Um, but but uh, uh, this, this war continues and will continue for, for some years to come. Um, there's no, no clean end date, but, th but this also, is the sort of war that Biden is comfortable conducting. Yeah. Uh, you know, Joe Biden doesn't want large conventional forces doing counterinsurgency operations, doing nation building. But he's very comfortable letting the intelligence community and the special operations community target individuals who want to do very bad things to the United States and our Western allies. 
So here's another reader question that actually tags right onto that. Pew said that 54% of US adults supported Biden's decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and 42% said it was wrong. Mm. What impact do you think this will have on Biden's presidential legacy? In other words, are, are people with him? What's happening there? Maybe too early to tell. In the heat of it, and, in the, and it was a hot moment uh, for those 11 days or so. And, and justifiably, it was a mess. Uh, I don't know that presidencies rest on such a thing. Uh, if things happen, if an attack grows out of Afghanistan and there's an impulse to go back or whatever else, there will be other things that could happen. Uh, if those happen, we'll see. But it's, uh, it's. Uh, I, I mean, he had to, he had to go. He had to get it out. He had to under whatever circumstances, as Rajiv said. It wouldn't have been under the circumstances he did it if he would have known, apparently, what was going on. But it, uh, it's a little early to call it yet on, on Biden, other than the fact that almost anything he does is going to get about 40% of the people mm. to say no, because we're so, we're divided. so divided. They, they believe that he wasn't legally elected president. So what are they going to think about him pulling out of Afghanistan, even though Trump was the guy who signed the treaty? So... You so remember, the politics is a very wacky because you have many Republicans who've been supportive of ending the war and pulling out. Now, of course, any excuse they have to go and attack Biden, they'll take, um, you know, just like you see, for instance, Republican governors who are once pro-vaccine now being very anti-vaccine. Um, but you know, with the electorate, this may play in interesting ways. It's not at all clear, you know, and to Michael's point, you know, there's an initial reaction. Nobody likes the look of America losing on TV and the chaos and so forth. But with the passage of some time, of course, Republican candidates will seek to, you know, attack Democrats because of this. Um, but um, it, it may play out in more complex ways. Um, uh, to whatever extent it, it still is an issue that voters will care anything about mm. come the 22 midterms or the 24 general election. Mm. Yep. Tom from Spokane, and this I think can be our, our last question. We've been talking about America after 9-11 from the American perspective. Yeah. What about the perspective from the Middle East? What kind of reckoning has been happening with the idea of America uh, in these countries where we have fought these wars. Well, if you if you look at the if you watch the film, I think you'll get a hint. You'll get more than a hint if you think about it. Uh, uh, as Rajiv said a little earlier, our prestige in the world, our sway, or anything, is so dramatically diminished. And and there are all those moments, those Abu Ghraib, the Guantanamo. There's so many moments. Of, uh, of of American failure over there that it's that it, it's hard to believe that the people there mm. uh, in Iraq in Afghanistan in Syria I mean we we you know our I think our our as I, I the only word is our ability to be kind of convincing as a as a reliable ally or representative of something different is uh, is very dramatically diminished. What do you think, Rajiv? Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to come to the view in this country that oh, they never wanted us there. Um, they they just want us out. Um, and the truth is far more complex. Uh, many many Afghan people wanted the international community to help them, and uh, they didn't necessarily want 
want us to act the way we did all the time. Um, they didn't necessarily want as many troops and us to, to uh, employ the some of the strategies we did, but they, they wanted our assistance in helping to, to rebuild. Uh, they wanted security help. Uh, same with uh, the Iraqi people. Um, and, uh, and by extension, uh, countries in that, that broader region. Um, so uh, there's a desire for American engagement. It's just that that desire is not commensurate with uh, how the American people want to engage in the world today. Well, uh, uh, and, and how we acted when we got there. That's right. We, we, we didn't act in the way that they were, they were hoping. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Well, Michael and Rajiv, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Like I said, 20 years of material, all of these you know, decisions, leadership, uh, trust, exaggerations, pain. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to put into words, right? Um, we, the three of us were there, 9-11, we, we felt it. We, we felt that wound. Um, we felt the immediate unity. We, we saw our members of Congress on the steps of the Capitol, which to our viewers, by the way, it's a very powerful moment in this film. Um, definitely encourage you to, to watch it. It's, it's almost beyond imagining that that level of unity or at least you know, acting together is even possible. And of course, today we dream, is it possible again? Thank you so, so much for this conversation uh, and for sharing some time with us tonight. You bet. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Michael, Rajiv, and Monica for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to Crosscut.com slash donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.